good morning, everybody. Hey, I got a real simple question off the start is, where did the Bible come from? How did we get this thing that, we ha that you have in your hands or you have on your phone? How did we uh, come up with that? Where did it come from? Were any books in this uh, Bible left out? Or should there be other ones that should be included? Right, right? And sometimes we think about those kinds of questions. So some of you in the room probably know all the answers to these questions already. And others of you are like, I've never thought of that. I'll be drinking from the fire hose today. And, and we're just going to load you up today with some stuff to be thinking about, right? right? And those of you on the live stream, we're going to have so much here. You should just crack your Bible open and be at your kitchen table and checking this all, all stuff out, okay? So here we go. Here's our verse we're going to talk about today. 2 Peter 1.16. Here we go, it's on the screen. Peter, the apostle, writing, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also had the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as, a, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hum uh, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter here is writing, he's reminding people of this, that he says, we saw it all. We were eyewitnesses. We we're on that mountain in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus transformed into glory. And so we heard all these things. The Old Testament validates all of this because it's completely reliable to us. He says, these are not cleverly devised stories. In fact, that's the Greek word for myth or fable, the mythos. And so he's saying, it's not a myth. We were there. And besides that, the Old Testament prophets and all that all pointed to this moment of Jesus Christ as well. Peter was there with, when Jesus got baptized and all the way through all his ministry, and he's saying that I was there along with the other disciples as well. It's completely reliable as well. And he's saying these Old Testament prophets, uh, people who wrote scripture, they did so not of their own interpretation. So that word, let's clarify that, it means origin. It means it didn't come from themselves, it came from God. So it wasn't like they just made up stuff and God kind of said, that's good enough. No, it directly came from God. Its own origin came from them. The Holy Spirit moved them and uh, worked with them, it, let's put it that way, and they were able to write scripture that didn't have any error in it and it's exactly what God wanted us to know. Okay, so here's point number one. The Bible is the word of God penned by men to be understood by a group of people to communicate a specific message. So your Bible is the word of God. God communicated a message to us, right? God, God communicates to us that we're loved, that God values us, many things in scripture here. But every book of the Bible had an original audience. And many of the people who received this book received uh, words from a prophet and apostle a lot of times they were suffering, or many times they had questions, and so they're answering questions that they may have had, or they're giving them hope as well. So Paul, for instance, wrote a letter to 
the church in Rome, and he gave them a lot of doctrine because they needed to hear those kinds of things. And Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, because that group of people just escaped out of Egypt. They needed to hear all these things, so it was directly specific to them at the time. And Peter wrote this letter that we just read out of to people who were being persecuted for their faith. And so an audience heard these things right off the bat. And Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses. And he also says, very interesting phrase, he says, a dark place, or there's darkness. I got to think about that phrase. Like no other time, there's a lot of darkness around us, right? Our culture, our world, our society, there are a lot of dark. Where do we get light? Where do we get hope? And Peter's saying that's in God's word. The Bible is living and active and gives us purpose and meaning. I want to go over some important concepts, and we're going to dive into this question is, where did the Bible come from? So here's the first one, the word revelation. That's a big word. We only use it in church, basically. And theologians use it this way. It's that God revealed himself in nature. God created nature. But that wasn't quite enough. So God sent his son to communicate to us directly, right? right? And directly through scripture. So we call that revelation. Another word that we talk about sometimes, and I did last week, is the word inspiration. Every word of the Bible came from God. Every word. God breathed the apneustos. It came from God. It originated with God, not with humans. So I'll give you some fast facts here. If some of you are kind of new to this thing called church, there are 66 books in the Bible. In fact, the word Bible means books as well. It was written by about 40 different people. We're authors as Moses, David, Nehemiah. We have a lot of people, John, Peter, and so forth, wrote some of this. It was actually written in three original languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek, but there are a handful of chapters in the Old Testament written in Aramaic because the original audience didn't really understand Hebrew at that time. So part of the Bible is written in Aramaic. And if you go from the very first books of the Bible, Moses, all the way to the New Testament, there's about a 1,500-year time span. So we have a lot of people writing it and a lot of books that are written together. And there are about seven, 750,000 words in your English Bible. So there are a lot of words in this, in this book. And if you have small print, it's this thick. If you have big print, it's like this thick, really big. And the unifying theme, there's a message all throughout the Bible, and it's that you can be redeemed. What does that mean? Let's just put it this way. God loves you and has chosen you, and when you trust Jesus as your Savior, you have eternal life and forgiveness. That's the unifying theme of Scripture as well. Okay, so let's look at this third important word, and it's the word canonization. And I'm not talking about a cannon that shoots cannonballs. The word canonization, uh, that word means like a measuring stick or something that's true, put it that way. So the Bible is true. That's how we got that. And there are 66 words, uh, 66 books in the Bible. I mean, so the question we have to kind of wrestle with, how do I know that the books in this Bible are the right ones? How do I know that this is the, that it's final, that these 66 books are it? How do we know that? So... And about 30, 40 years ago, there was a group of people that said, it's called the Jesus Seminar. They got together and they said, well, you know, not all these books are it. 
In fact, a lot of them shouldn't be there in these things called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament, only a few of those things were really said by Jesus. And so, and so it put a lot of doubt in people's minds about this book uh, uh, that we have the Bible as well. And over the last 10, 15 years, there's been some books written about other Gospels out there. The Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Barnabas. We got a whole bunch of those things. Well, what do we do with those? Or with the Book of Mormon? Or anything else you want to add into the, into the pot here as well? How do I know that this is the Word of God and this is it? How do I know that? So to help you understand that, I'll give you a little bit of history lesson. But I hope it's more fun than your high school history, okay? And, and that you're not zoning out on me right away. All right, so we're going to do that. So the Old Testament is made up of 39 books, all the way from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And that's a big swath of time and so forth. And so Malachi wrote about I'll just round numbers here, 400 B.C., and then we had a period of silence of 400 years until the New Testament was written as well. So how do I know, let's start with this, how do I know those 39 books are it? How do I know that? And first off, I want to say that Jesus referred to the major sections of the Bible that the, all the Jews knew, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings. In fact, he said the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, and he would say that. And he quoted from 24 of these books directly. And in fact, if you get the entire New Testament, they quote from 36 of those Old Testament books. And they always considered them scripture. Jesus never came along the scene and said, oh, you got the wrong books, guys. You know, you got the wrong books. No, he never did that. He upset the apple cart in many different ways, but he never did that. And then in 90 AD, a bunch of Jewish rabbis got together at a place called Jamnia, and they said, we need to make sure that everybody understands this is our Bible, this is our 39 books of the Old Testament, and they got together and they didn't pick them out. They affirmed and made it public that these are the books that we have as scripture. And in fact, Josephus, the historian in 90 AD, wrote the same thing. This is, uh, these are the 39 books that the Jews considered to be scripture as well. And these books are binding to us and so forth. Okay. I want you to think about it this way. Michelangelo painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He painted it. It's a masterpiece. Now then, when did it become a masterpiece? It became a masterpiece the very moment he painted it. Not everybody knew it at the time. A lot of people knew it. That's awesome. That's amazing. But maybe it took some people 20, 30 years ago, you know, that is a masterpiece. But when was it a masterpiece? The very moment he painted it. They didn't change it after that. The very moment he painted it, it was a masterpiece. And the very moment the authors of Scripture put those words down, that's when it became Scripture. That's, that, that, that's when it wasn't later and a group of people said, oh, that's it, and we're just picking it arbitrarily as well. So in the same way... When we talk about the Bible, we need to think about it this way, that it, the moment the authors penned it, it was Scripture. And then later on, people just affirmed the truth of that as well. So that's the 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus affirmed them. The New Testament affirms them. Jewish rabbis affirmed them all the way through. So the New Testament was written beginning in about 
let's just use round numbers, about uh, 48 AD all the way to 96 AD. So we have the Gospels being written. We have letters from apostles. We have the book of Revelation, probably the last one time-wise, the very back of your Bible, about 96 AD. And all of these books point to Jesus Christ, and they are, were accepted immediately by church people of the time and by eyewitnesses of Jesus, which there were hundreds of them. They were always accepted as Scripture immediately as well. Now, don't let any type of movie, documentary, anything else on Netflix, National Geographic, tell you that there's a whole bunch of other books that should have been included in there. So they often point to books called like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas. Those works were written 100, maybe even 200 years after the time of Jesus. Clearly not written by Thomas. Clearly not written by those other apostles. And when you read those, they look entirely different. I've read many of those. Not all of them. There's a lot of material out there. So don't let those movies or those, those uh, Netflix documentaries fool you or cast doubt on that. So right away, people began to accept it as scripture. And then in about the fourth century, a group of pastors, deacons, bishops, elders, they had all kinds of names for church leaders, got together and said, you know what, this is our scripture. We better make it public and just say, these are the 27 books of the New Testament. And they got together and did that. It's called the Council of Carthage. They just got together, had a church meeting. That's what that means. They had a church meeting, said, this is our Bible. So why did they do that? So I'll tell you why they did it. There was a guy named Marcion. He was a second century heretic. And Marcion said, you know what? I don't like a lot of those books of the New Testament. The only one I like is Luke. And I don't like Paul, so we'll take him out. So I got Luke and Acts, and then only things that Peter and John wrote, no Paul, no Hebrews, no Matthew, Mark, or John, because he just took his scissors out and just did this, started cutting away. And people, other people started doing that, and they said, that's not right. So we better make sure that people know that this is our scripture, these 27 books. So it was a response to people taking out of scissors and deleting parts of the Bible. And that's why they did that. And that, until that point, they didn't really have a need to. Then, about the same time period, there was a guy named Montanus. He was kind of a, well, he was a heretic too. That's what I call him, really divergent beliefs. And by that, I mean a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of this, and a little bit of that. And Montanus says, I'm a prophet. I'm speaking words that are equal to Paul and to John and to Peter. And you guys better write these down and put them in the back of your Bible. In the back of my Bible, I have maps. But they started inserting things in, the, in these church leaders and no, 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 no. We're not adding anything. It ended with John, and that's what we've always believed. In fact, some of them said, Irenaeus goes, I heard it right from Polycarp, who, who knew John and hung out with John, was mentored by the Apostle John. So we have this, have this chain of teaching that was very, very clear as well. In fact, it's nothing new. You have Thomas Jefferson doing the same thing. He took his Bible and took a scissors to it and cut out parts he didn't like. Isn't that what we do today, too? I don't like that part. We'll just get rid of it. Or you have people who just want to add to it, like the Book of Mormon or other kind of writings as well. 
So in those early years, they had a couple criteria to make sure that the book that they had the Bible was correct. And one of those was that, did it come from an apostle or a prophet? Did it come from somebody like that? And so Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples, but it's very obvious he heard everything from Peter and he was writing Peter's gospel. It's very obvious that Luke was a close associate of all these apostles. And then he says, I researched it thoroughly and uh, those kinds of things. And Paul quotes Luke as scripture. Paul does. So they all considered Luke to be scripture as well. He was part of the apostolic circle. So was this written by an apostle, close associate, a prophet? Another one that they used is, did the early Christians accept it right away? And the answer is, with our 27 books of the New Testament, yes, they, they, they did as well. And the third criteria they used is, is it consistent message and theme throughout this book? Is it consistent? So I'll give you an example. The Gospel of Thomas, verse 114 to be exact, says that women will not go to heaven and then you have to be transformed from a woman to a man. Okay. I'm not, you, some of you laugh. I'm not saying this to be silly, but it's, it's, when you read those things, it's just not consistent. It contradicts so many things. Very contradictory. And so we look at those other books and go, they don't even fit as well. Another criteria they had was, does it have historical accuracy? Is it fitting with those uh, things we know to be true as well. And so that was another criteria that they used. And the fifth one was a little bit more subjective, and, it, and it's simply this. Does this book transform people's lives, making a difference? And that, that they recognize that's subjective. So I think I said this last week. I, I've read very little of Shakespeare, but what I've read has really transformed my life. I'm a better husband and a person for reading Shakespeare. I'm more honest. I have an integrity and all those things from Shakespeare. No. I have those things. You get those things from this book, from this book, right? Right? And so, and so these, these 27 books were affirmed by these, by these uh, criteria as well, okay? Now, we have Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, and other books by scholars trying to cast doubt upon the uh, uh, Bible that we have as well, trying to say this is not God's word. And so we have a lot of difficulty with these things because our culture is really trying to, in, in some circles, criticize the Bible to the point that we don't trust it anymore. But when you apply these criteria and you look at the facts and the evidence, you see that what happened was that when the Bible was penned originally by Paul or Peter or John, the early church, they all accepted it as scripture the very moment they wrote it down. Later on, Christians did not determine that it's scripture. They merely affirmed what was already true. So it wasn't like this. They got together in a church committee meeting. And they said, hey, let's take a vote. Is this book in or out? Oh, we made it by one vote. It's in. <laughs> or maybe we took a vote in Constantine the emperor. That's another fable out there. He decided which ones are in. No, 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 no. That's not what happened. They were merely affirming what they had always believed in those meetings. Why? Because of those other Montanus and Marcion folks. So for some of you, you come from a Catholic background. Yeah, and I recognize that. So if you crack your Catholic Bible, there are extra books in there, and it's called the Apocrypha. And the word Apocrypha means hidden or hidden books. 
Where did that come from? Well, between Malachi, that last Hebrew prophet, and the time of Jesus, we had this 400-year gap. And many of these hidden books, apocryphal books, are talking about historical things that happened during that time. And actually, they're valuable to read. But the Jews never accepted them as scripture. Jesus never quoted from them as scripture as well. When Josephus and Philo and other Jewish uh, scholars were writing about historical things, they never mentioned these books as being part of scripture as well, okay? And so these books, what happened was that they were floating around and rejected as scripture very early on. And then 1,500 years later during the Protestant Reformation, and the word Protestant means protester. They are protesting the Catholic Church. And Luther says, you know what? Uh, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone and some other things. And the Catholic Church said, you know, we have other doctrines. And to prove it, we'll make these other books of the Bible. We'll make these other books part of the Bible. And they canonized the Apocrypha. And so many of these books, uh, they, they, they inserted them to uphold their beliefs 1,500 years later. An example would be purgatory, not found in the Bible, but, but mentioned briefly in the apocryphal literature as well. So, all that to say, this book, you can count on it. That's what I'm trying to say. From the beginning to the end, what you have is the scripture in your hand. Let me expose you to another word. Here it is, transmission, D. Do we have that on the screen? D. Trans thousands of hand-copied manuscripts of the Bible exist. So this is what I get sometimes. People ask me, well, how do you know that, it's, that these books weren't miscopied, that they left out parts? Because you don't have the original document. Yeah, we don't have the original one that, I'll just say the Gospel of John, I just turned to it. We don't have the original one. So we just have copies of the copies of the copies. And you may say, well, what if they made mistakes in those copying things, okay? And that's a great question. That's a fantastic, fantastic question. And the reason we don't have the originals is because they wrote it on papyrus. That's like paper back in those times. It didn't last very long. Secondly, they read it so much and looked at it and copied it so much that it ruined it. And in this Bible that I have, I have coffee stains, I, I have tape holding parts of it together, I have pages that are falling out, right? That's a good thing. And so over time, those original documents just, just disintegrated, basically. But the good thing for us, they made a whole bunch of copies. We call those manuscripts. So a manuscript is a handwritten copy, they didn't have the printing press yet. And in the Old Testament, the scribes were very meticulous about copying. They knew the middle letter of the, of the book of Genesis. They knew where the middle, and they would count every letter. And if they missed it, they threw it away and started all over. That's a lot of hand copies. And they would only copy letter by letter, not word by word or sentence by sentence, nothing by memory. You looked here, made a made an A, and then you made a C, you know, you just, you just did it that way. And so we have all of these manuscripts. Now, some of you may have taken philosophy in college. And if you took philosophy 101, you might have studied Plato. You might have even had to read some of Plato. Now then, when it comes to Plato, we only have like nine manuscript copies of Plato. 
fan, uh, uh, well-known philosopher, right? Everybody, Plato, we have nine copies. And then by the time Plato lived, right here, and our first copy, it's like 400 years time span. So guess how many New Testament copies we have? Now, you might think, well, if he had 10, that's better than Plato. That'd be nice, because you have 10 copies. Well, we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And then we have a piece of the Gospel of John that's dated anywhere from 100 to 125 AD, just 30, 40 years after the original. So compared to Plato, which nobody doubts that these are Plato's words, it's an embarrassment. It's the, we have a mountain of manuscripts with uh, uh, the Bible as well. So compared to other ancient Greek and Roman um, books and letters, you know, we have to realize that comparatively, it's just not even in the same hemisphere. It's just so different, the amount that, that we have. So the earliest copies of Plato are... are I misspoke, 1,200 years after his death, 1,200 years, and we have copies of the New Testament within 50 years of the Gospel of John. In fact, in the hallway out here, we have a picture of one of those, a canvas picture of one of those things. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found a copy of the book of Isaiah, and they compared it to the copy that we had, 1,000 AD, 1,200 BC, or 200 BC, that, that copy was like exact. Like exact. So the people who copied these things were, were very meticulous about writing those things down. Okay, so let's just say that we lost all of our 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Could we figure out what was in the Bible? The answer is yes, because we have 20,000, can you put those up, 20,000 copies of the Bible from the second century in other languages. 20,000. 10,000 of those are in Latin. They were translating the Syriac and Gothic and Georgian and, and Coptic as well, all of these languages. So we could create the New Testament from these other translations of the Bible. They translated quickly into other languages as well. Furthermore, if you grabbed all the sermons pastors preached during the first couple centuries and all the things people wrote, all these devotional books, they quoted the Bible one million times. One million. So we could create the New Testament just from those quotes because what did they do? They had a copy of the Bible and they go, I'm going to insert this into my sermon just like I, just like I do on the screen. <laughs> right? And so we could create the Bible from that as well. Okay, so if you put all of these manuscripts, translations, sermons and devotional books and stack them up, they would be a mile high from those first few centuries. If you took all the copies of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Livy, uh, these ancient authors, they would only come to four feet. So the amount of copies of the New Testament that we have is phenomenal. So when people say to me, well, it's so corrupted, they didn't really write that. Somebody else inserted it. No, no. Because the pastor who lives in North Africa 
quoted the same verse, as well as the pastor in, in Constantinople, a thousand miles away, and it's the exact same. I, I mean, all this adds up to it didn't get changed. It, ju it just didn't get changed at all. So it's overwhelming the amount of information that we have about the New Testament. But it comes with a warning. There's a warning for you. There's a warning for me. There's a warning for all of us. In Revelation 22, it says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. In other words, you better have a good dermatologist if you're going to monkey around with the Bible. <laughs> and if anyone takes away, takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Come, uh, amen, come Lord Jesus. Now then, Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He says he received it directly from Jesus and he wrote these things down. He had been exiled, persecuted to an island called Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. He says he has this vision and Jesus spoke to him directly. And then he wrote it all down. And John says that you need to tell everyone about this book, of this prophecy, because it all points to that Jesus is coming back again. Now, I study this passage and I look at this book, the Bible, Revelation. I have a couple conclusions. And here's the first one. Don't mess around with the book. Just don't mess around with this. This is our book. Don't add to it. Don't take a scissors and cut out the parts you don't like. I don't like that part. I don't want to live up to that part. And I'll just rip that part out. I thought about bringing a scissors up here and cutting in my Bible. And I thought, I don't also want to do that. This is a grand illustration. But this is, this is the book. And John says, man, don't be detracting from it. Don't add to it. You better be careful about that. Okay? And the second observation I have is that Scripture has a boundary to it. It's a firm, fixed boundary. It ends with the Apostle John, the last living apostle. Because in John chapters 14 and 16, Jesus predicted the New Testament would be coming that he would speak to his apostles and they would write these things down. So be careful about that boundary that's there as well. Deuteronomy 4.2 says this, Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. And keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Do you see the boundaries? We see that principle again. Or in Proverbs, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebu rebuke you and prove you a liar. Don't add to the ideas of this book. Don't subtract from them. There's a warning here for all of us. So people have added to this. They've had this crazy idea called prosperity theology that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and super wise. I got news for you that ain't true. Somebody adding stuff to it, right? Right? People add to this thing called universalism. Oh, everybody's going to go to heaven and everybody's going to get saved and I'll be hunky-dory at the end. They're just adding stuff. They're just adding to it. Everybody's going to heaven, they're adding to it. Or they're subtracting from it. There are no 
sexual norms in the Bible. There's, there's, these other things don't apply to us as well. You know, they're just cutting out that kind of stuff as well. People have added and subtracted, and it's a warning to us, be careful about that. Don't be adding to it. Don't be subtracting to it. Here's what most of us do. We don't cut it out with the scissors. We just ignore it. We ignore it. We just say, hey, this, this part, I'm just ignoring that. It really doesn't have anything to do with me, or I don't want to have it do anything with me. I don't want to change my behavior and my attitude. I don't want to change the way I think. I don't want to change the philosophy of life that I have. I don't want to change these things. I, I just want to keep going in this direction. Oh, sure, we don't take a scissor and cut it out like these ancient people like Marcion and Montanus did, but we have other ways to do it. We just go, ah, not for today, not for me. We just write it off, blow it off. We just ignore it. That's what we do. So what do we do with this book? What's number three? Courageously align your life to God's word. This book inspires me changes me. I'm not the same person I used to be. Okay. Uh, about 16 years ago, I'm fly fishing in Montana. That's nice, isn't it? It's summertime. I'm fly fishing. It's awesome. In the campsite, I'm reading a little book by a guy in Portland named Randy Alcorn, and I start cracking open my Bible, and I'm studying something, and and I just thought to myself, after reading 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I thought, I've missed the boat. And it all had to do with this topic of generosity and giving. So I need to be a more generous person. I, I, I'm a saver, not a spender, and that's a, that's a good thing. But when you become a miser, that's horrible. I had to hang it on too tightly. So this book just changed me at that point about, about stewardship and giving. And many of you have read things in the scripture too and you read those and it just, it just changes your life, right, right? This book was not written to give you information about history or about philosophy or about values. This book was written to you to change your life. And it will change your life. And you gotta start by reading it, trusting that it's true as well. You can be changed from the inside out. You can have an unloving heart be a loving heart. You can be upset with your spouse and then learn how to live and how to love your spouse as well. But the real question is, is the Bible changing my life or not? And maybe some of you are new at all this, and that's fantastic. I'd encourage you to jump in and just keep reading Scripture. Here's what Psalm 1 says, one of my, one of my favorite ones. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step but the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. In other words, choose your friends carefully. That's all he's saying. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night? Here's the result. That person is like a tree planted beside streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. In other words, when you base your life and build your life on Scripture, you build it here. You trust it. You build it. You courageously align your thinking with the thinking of Scripture. 
you courageously align your actions and attitudes, behavior with this book, you become like a tree planted, like a strong tree by the water. When you go down to the Deschutes River, eastern Oregon, you have trees along the banks, you get very far away, it's rather empty. Not much around it. You see, when we build our lives on this book, it's like a tree planted on the water. You're, you're connected to Christ. Some of you right now, you're facing an empty life inside. Maybe that's because you're not planted firmly in God's word. You're not building your life there. Maybe you're lacking security right now. You're feeling very insecure and inadequate. I mean, COVID has done that. I so many things have made us feel that way. Finances, jobs, relationships, all those things as well. But when we plant our lives on this book, we are like that tree planted firmly. Put your roots down deep into that as well. You'll be like that tree. Now then, when we do that, when we do that, and we build our lives on this book, we begin to change some. It's fantastic. I can't wait for some of you to come up to me a year from now and say, you know what? I actually started reading the Bible. I've learned some stuff. I've learned stuff about myself. I didn't know I was quite so selfish. I didn't know I needed a change in some ways, and it, and it revealed that to me. Those are awesome things. So I gave you a challenge last week, and it was to read Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. I didn't say you had to read the whole thing every day. <laughs> I said you just start off with reading a paragraph from Psalm 119. It has 22 paragraphs. So read a paragraph a day. It's about seven, eight, nine verses. I hope you've been able to do I've been able to do that. Yeah. But reading it's just one thing. Then you need to ponder it. What does this mean for me? Just let it roll around in your head. Be thinking about it. And maybe even jot some notes down. Write, write, write in a journal. So I've been reading this on my phone, and I just highlight and save it, and then I can put a little note there on my phone. I just type in a little note. Hey, I, that's a cool thought. That's all you need to write down. Or, you know what? I need to think more about this. I need to think more about this as well. Hey, I'm going to pray. And maybe you've been having doubts about Scripture, doubts about the Bible. Maybe you haven't been building your life on the Bible. You've been building your life on social media. You've been building your life on news reports. I suggest you don't do that. It won't go well. Your stress will go through the roof. But build your life on Scripture. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we acknowledge that it's true. Give us the courage to align our lives with your word. Give us the courage to embrace what your word says and to live it out. Maybe your simple prayer today is simply this, God, help me to build my life on your word. 
and to put it into action. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace we've received through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen.